Hello, my name is Erin Lowe. I am the Student Project Supervisor at the Clark Forum for Contemporary Issues at Dickinson College. I had the privilege of working on our event, Free Speech on Campus, as a Student Project Manager, and I'm here today with this week's speaker, Dr. Sagal Ben-Paroth, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education and author of the books Free Speech on Campus and Making Up Our Mind. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you, Erin. It's great to be here. So I wanted to start by talking to you a bit about how you got involved in this conversation and were drawn initially to free speech controversies. Was there a particular experience that drew you into this work? Yes, uh, there surely was. So generally my work as a philosopher has focused on democratic theory. And so I'm interested in issues related to democracies and how they are enacted and contested in educational institutions. And I usually tend to think about K-12 schools, right? So how different policies, curricula, pedagogical practices, governance structures, so different different aspects of our educational system, how they affect the opportunities that we might have to become and then to be um, equal democratic citizens. So that's not so related to the topic, right? But then as part of my work at Penn, you know, professors generally, they have different administrative duties that they have to take on or they are asked to take on. So I was asked to chair a committee that we've had for maybe five decades at Penn, a committee on open expression. And this is a committee that's responsible for upholding the guidelines on open expression that we have on campus and, you know, looking at disputes around acceptable expression and, you know, considering procedures, things like that. So it's a fairly large committee. It has 17 members, so a little bit hard to wrap your arms around it. And I was chairing it. And this was in 2015, which is just when a lot of controversies were starting to erupt on college campuses, including my own, including at Penn. And so because of this administrative responsibility that I had, you know, to chair a committee, which is something that we do fairly you know, normally as part of our jobs, I started really observing the rift that was just becoming apparent, you know, around the question of the boundaries of what can be talked about on campus, right? And initially, this was just evident in disagreement about speakers, like who you can invite to speak on campus, which of course is something we still are seeing all the time. And then it evolved towards other things, you know, what types of protests are acceptable. The students were having sit-ins, you know, in the administrative building because of their effort to get Penn to divest from fossil fuels, which is still ongoing, this effort. Um, and, you know, so so it was just, you know, it, it became basically the biggest part of my job was managing this committee and the issues that were just occurring around campus. And so I started talking to other people doing similar work on different campuses. And so it, I just became really, I just couldn't think about anything else, honestly, or or talk about anything else. And that continues as well. That's wonderful. 
So I also had the opportunity to read your book, Free Speech on Campus, and I'm wondering if you could share with our audience a bit about the distinction you draw between free speech on the quad and in the classroom and why you think it's important to make that kind of distinction. Great. That's a great question. And people just don't pay enough attention to that. You know, Erin, people think about the university as if it's one body. But a university, especially a residential university like Dickinson and like Penn, so it's different from a commuter college in the sense that this is your house. You live here. So just as much as I mean, it's not exactly the same, but just for a comparison, you can say, like, in a family, you know, people can say, oh, we don't talk like that, we have different norms, you can't say that around the dinner table, whatever it might be, right? So you can have boundaries that are unrelated to the democratic demands for free speech in a family, you know, like like kitchen or, or, or living room. And so, of course, a college is not a family or, or an actual home, but it is where you live. Uh, and it is the main context for your social interactions for, you know, most of the four years. I mean, you can go visit your home or, or go out. But, but this is, you know, we should think about this not only just as a learning community, which has its own rules, and those rules apply to the classroom and similar, you know, the lab, right? So similar context. But we should also think about it as a place where you should find yourself feeling at ease, you know. You should find yourself comfortable and safe, you know. In the dorms, we have different rules than we have in the classroom because you don't necessarily want to do this thing all the time, right? And so my sense is that in classrooms, there really is, first of all, the, the most significant justification for maintaining very broad boundaries for acceptable speech in the sense that people should feel free to voice their views, to ask questions, to be wrong, you know, or try out ideas and then decide that actually they, you know, that's not what they actually think. You know, so it should be a lively conversation and instructors or professors should support that. And there are various, you know, norms and rules around that. But it's a place where knowledge is developed and disseminated. And so it really requires that we look to hear as many voices and perspectives as we can. On the quad, you know, like like if you are in a club or, you know, just walking around or you're going to your room or something, it's a different circumstance, right? It's mostly peer-to-peer rather than having a professor sort of like organize the conversation. And it creates the social environment in which you as a student might feel that you belong, right? And so there is just different boundaries and I think different norms. And so we just have to recognize that the university has all these different contexts. It's not one piece, you know, here are the rules and they apply the same everywhere. We can protect open expression while recognizing that different norms apply in different contexts. 
So along those same lines, in your book you say that it's important to expose students to some of the tensions and disagreements that they might encounter outside of the bubble created by a homogenous campus social environment. Why do you think that is important and why is a college or university campus the place for that to occur? Great. So I, first of all, I just want to acknowledge it's controversial, you know, so this view that I'm voicing and that I continue to hold, so I appreciate, you know, my own continuity in this regard, because <laughs> I do change my mind sometimes. But, you know, college is about expanding your horizons, and it can be in the actual subject matter that you study, whether it's philosophy or chemistry or whatever it might be. And it's also about learning something about the society in which you live and the country in which, you know, the college is operating, you know. And so I feel like if we are exposed to a broader range of experiences and perspectives and views, and I'm not saying the broadest range, but a broader range than we might, you know, then we might comfortably expose ourselves to family or our friends group or, you know, context that we choose. If we hear about more and different people and views, I think we learn something too. We learn how to act in a civic environment. We learn how to think about our own ideas in light of other people's disagreements with us, you know. So the goal is not, for me, the goal is not to say, well, the world out there is a difficult place and so we need to, you know, punch you until you get used to it. I mean, that's not, you know, the goal is not to say it's a tough life out there so it has to be tough in here too. It's definitely not my view that college has to imitate, like, the real world uh, in all sorts of ways. You know, it, it doesn't, you know. The, the real world operates uh, on different terms, you know. Holding a job, finding a job, you know, renting a I mean, these are things you don't do here, and it's a good thing, you know. You're doing here something else. You're going to college. So this is not an effort to imitate whatever it's happening outside so that you get used to it. The effort rather is to try and help young people develop both the understanding of what is happening beyond, you know, the grounds of the college and also some of the skills and the attitudes that are necessary for engaging with these diverse, you know, these diverse opinions engaging with them effectively, you know. So I, can I give you one quick example? As you know, in recent years, there's been a lot of controversies around vaccines and, you know, whether they are good and why. And, and you know, in, in our public health program, people were, at Penn, people were very concerned about this because, you know, because vaccines are really such an important tool that we've had for decades and decades now to fight all sorts of diseases quite successfully. And I was of the opinion, which again, I continue to hold, that 
the public health program needs to be, you know, the students there need to be exposed to anti-vaccine activists, right? And that they need to hear from them. And the reason for that is not because they need to consider whether to be persuaded by anti-vaccine arguments, but because this would be their job. And so within this, they will have to face it. And so they need to figure out ways to engage with these arguments, to consider them, to respond to them. And they can do it within the cocoon, you know, of our supportive program with our professors. And here is this argument. How can I think about that? If you just face it for the first time as a professional, I worry that you'd be stumped, you know, and that you'd say something unhelpful, such as, oh, you're crazy, you're completely wrong. Even if the person is completely wrong, it's not helpful to engage with them like that. So I think if you engage with them as part of your process of learning, you're inoculated in a way, you know what I mean? Like you learn how to do it. And so that's, that's my reason for trying to expose students to diverse views to the extent that those are useful for their learning. I think you bring up a really important point too, that there are these different kinds of speech. And I'm wondering if we could take a moment to talk a bit about harmful speech mm -hmm. as you do in your book. Can you explain a bit about what you think are reasonable limits for promoting harmful speech and some of the relevant considerations that support your perspective? Right, so this is a really tough issue, of course. This is one of the most pressing issues that a lot of colleges are facing now, whether it's, you know, speech that is hate-based in all sorts of ways, anti-Semitic and racist and anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant and anti-also anti-trans or LGBTQ more broadly. So, so there are a lot of platforms that provide voice an opportunity for expression to people who who hold hate-based and bigoted views. And I actually don't think that we can learn from any and all of these. You know, sometimes you can say, you know, this is an argument we've heard and we refuted, we've heard and we refuted, I'm not interested in hearing anymore. So you need to decide what is the purpose of giving voice and space to hate-based or other harmful views. So, so I'll say this, I recognize that speech can be harmful. Words can hurt you. And the way, the specific way in which they can hurt you. So of course there is hurt just emotional, you know, like you feel shamed, humiliated, you know, undermined, rejected, right? So there, so these are real, you know, psychological harms. But I think what's really important for colleges to consider along with that is that part of what this harm does when it's repeated and when it's, you know, sustained and that when it goes unaddressed is that the people who are harmed effectively lose their voice in the sense that they will just sit back and they will say, you know what, whatever, I'm just not going to engage. 
you clearly don't believe in me, you don't trust me, you don't value me, you don't see me as an equal member of your community. And when I say you, I mean somebody, you know, some of my peers, maybe, unfortunately, my professor or somebody doesn't see me as an equal member here. They don't believe that I can contribute to the conversation. They don't see me as valued. And so never mind then. I'm just, you know, either I leave or I will just stay silent. What happens when I stay silent because of hateful or, you know, bigoted, etc. views that were voiced about me and my identity? When I decide to stay silent or when I am pressured into silence through these processes and, you know, these expressions, then it's not just that I am not well served by the learning community, Everyone around me is actually, you know, losing the opportunity to learn something from my experience. Maybe I have something interesting to say. Now you will never know, right? Because you silenced me, right? And so the worry for me in allowing harmful speech to go unchecked is that we are creating an impoverished conversation. And in this way, we are undermining everyone's learning, the people who are silenced and those who don't get to hear their voices. So because of this reason, I think we have to think really carefully about the ways in which we either organize our space to welcome some voices more than others, you know, voices that are well-informed or that are, you know, inclusive. And when we do allow other voices, and sometimes you have no choice, sometimes you allow hate-based speech. Why would you do that? For example, I will be teaching a class about education, you know, something about the education system, which is most of what I do. And in comes a student and they say, oh, you know, the reason poor kids are unsuccessful in school is because their parents don't care about their education. It's something I have heard in my class. Of course, it's not true. So it's misinformed, right? It's wrong. And it's also pretty hurtful because there's a lot of kids, you know, sitting right around you right here who grew up in poverty and are, you know, started to learn that their parents don't care about their education. So here I am. I allowed it in my class. Why did I allow it? Because I didn't know what he was going to say. So, you know, it, but even if I did know, I think I would allow it because how would he learn? How would he learn if I don't let him voice this view? If I said that's not something you can say in my class, be quiet. But I still think I need to address this, right, as, you know, the professor, right? So I have to say, you know, I know that this is a view that you've heard someplace and maybe you developed it yourself and, you know, some people hold this view. There's actually good studies that show that it's inaccurate. Parents of all income levels do care about their kids' education and, and put in a lot of efforts to advance it. But also you should know that you probably hurt some of your friends' feelings. And so I'm sure you didn't mean that and you didn't think about it this way, but it was a little hurtful. So you should just think about that. So it's my responsibility to address it when it comes up. And this was, of course, 
an, an example that is hurtful and is not the worst that you would hear. You would hear and probably have heard worse. Sometimes you allow that, but then you have to address it and then you have to mitigate it. What does it mean? It means that it's my job to carry some of the burden that these harmful words create. Because if I don't carry it, I, as a professor, or your college as an institution in different ways that they can do it, if they don't carry this burden, then it means that, like in my example, the poor kids, you know, the kids who grew up, you know, the students who grew up in poverty, or the people who the harmful words are pointed at, they have to carry it themselves. Right? And that's too heavy. That's such a good point. I haven't really thought about it in that light. And it reminds me of a number of conversations that I've been a part of in anticipation of your event here on campus. And something that has stood out for many people when reading your book is the distinction you draw between dignitary and intellectual safety. And I wonder if you could elaborate on that and also talk about how that distinction plays a role in establishing what you call a democratic framework of inclusive freedom. Great. Thank you for that. And I'm definitely going to talk about it tonight as well. So I appreciate the opportunity to rehearse. The basic idea, which is an idea that I developed based on Eamon Callan's work, is a colleague of mine who works on similar issues out at, in Stanford. And this distinction basically says the following. A lot of people would tell you that there is no place for safety in a college classroom. A college classroom needs to be a vibrant, intellectual environment. And so to ensure that, you have to just let all the voices be heard. And what I'm trying to suggest in the book is that, of course, it's important to do that, as we just discussed. But it's important to keep in mind that we need to sustain, maintain, we need to ensure to the best that we can that everyone in the class is recognized for their dignity, right? So that we don't point at a certain person for their views or attributes, and we don't point at a certain group and say, you actually, you know, you don't really belong, right? So that we don't create a way of thinking in the class that prioritizes some people, especially based on their group identity, over others. Oh, women don't really understand math, or whatever it might be, right? So if you do that, basically, you are creating unequal conditions for learning, right? And so the notion of dignitary safety is really a notion that says that the basic foundations of a learning community are ones that ensure everyone's dignity. Dignity as the opposite of humiliation, right? Dignity as the opposite of pointing at a person up front and saying, eh, you know, it's everyone's classroom, but you don't really belong here. We somehow let you sneak in, but you don't really belong. So this is the basic, you know, the basic notion of a dignitary safety. And once you establish that, 
through your practices and norms and the way that you conduct yourself and, the, you know, your responses to each, you know, you, I mean, the professor, right, or the instructor, how they support and, and, and maintain a conversation in the class that is based on equal dignity, then you can have all the intellectual free-for-all that you want. Then you can try out opinions and you can consider different views including you know marginal ones and but but you know that you are doing it together and that everyone is in the conversation together and so basically in in my my you know my account of inclusive freedom suggests that we have to first include everyone so ensure dignitary safety and after we do that we can have all the freedom that we want to speak our minds my last question is just, is there anything else that you'd like to add that we might not have discussed today that you think is really important for this conversation and you would like to leave our audience on that note? Ah, well, so I will say just this, that there is no one policy that is going to resolve all of these tensions. I developed the framework of inclusive freedom as a loose framework that is really aimed at expressing the values that I think institutions of higher education should hold, right? And how they should and can hold them together, that they don't need to choose between inclusion and belonging on the one hand or freedom of expression on the other, that it's actually possible to do it together. However, Every college and university is different. As we talked just now, residential and commuter, different rules. HBCUs and historically white institutions, different populations, sometimes uh, different aspects of their mission, different histories, so they can have different norms. A liberal arts college versus a large university, you have people of different ages, you have different research goals, different rules. So there is not going to be one policy like, you know, sign off on the Chicago Statement of Principles and you fix the whole thing. This is an ongoing work. Institutions should do it on their own terms and they should just commit to it as an ongoing part of their educational mission. And I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, Erin. That's been really fun. Thank you so much for joining me here today. On behalf of the whole Clark Forum, thank you. Thank you.